1: I guess the whole point of a podcast about making work better and work culture is the idea that maybe by making the experience of work better for people, they do better work. And so it becomes, I guess, a competitive advantage. It's the idea that the world works best when it's a happy place. If you ever listened to the episode with Jeffrey Pfeffer, we had a discussion on this because... Optimism and faith in human nature is one of the consistent mistakes that kind-hearted people make. We sort of presume the world is fair, that it returns to an equilibrium of balance of fairness. And the gist of that discussion was that the world is in fact savage. And unless we arm ourselves for it, we're going to be run over by a truck. On the subject of that, today's episode is about Uber. So it's based on a brilliant book that stacks of people have found themselves devouring in one sitting over the last couple of weeks. It's a book called Super Pumped by Mike Isaac. In many ways, it's the story of Travis Kalanick, the CEO of Uber. We're familiar with this guy and you may well have even heard Mike talking about the book over the, the last few weeks. This chat will be different because we're just going to focus on the culture of Uber. And the question for me was, Would Uber have been as successful if their culture wasn't so psychopathic? And secondly, could someone else adapt Uber's culture just a little bit to be slightly less blatant in their evilness? And so reap the benefits of some of the things that they were good at, but get away from some of the toxicity. Along the way, me and Mike also discuss WeWork. And there's probably never been a corporate loss of value like WeWork. A month ago, they were heading towards a $50 billion IPO. Today, they appear to be worth in the region of, of $1 to $5 billion, if that. If you haven't been following the car crash of their IPO, there's been some really compelling writing on it. British marketing commentator Mark Ritson wrote about WeWork. Beware any company that sounds like author Simon Sinek. Chances are they're using brand purpose as a deliberate smoke screen for all kinds of unmentionable corporate practices. That's really fascinating for me. Very often I turn up at events and talk. And and if I haven't mentioned purpose, and I very rarely do, it's one of the first questions. Excuse me, what about purpose? And uh, I've also said it sometimes. If you ever see, if you search websites of best places to work and you see neon coloured slides or photos of people hugging dogs, often on beanbags, beware that you aren't looking at culture, you're looking at marketing. Mark Ritson says WeWork wasn't lacking in talking about purpose. They said... Our mission is to elevate the world's consciousness. It's worth reminding ourselves that they're a competitor to Regis. My man crushed the amazing NYU professor, uh, Scott Galloway. He went further than this. Uh, quote, According to CNBC, this week the WeWork board fired CEO Adam Newman. No, the board didn't fire him. The media, academics and maths fired him. The board enabled him and either was a co-conspirator in the fraud or they were just idiots. And Galloway this week invented a really fun and illustrative concept of yoga babble. He correlated the amount of nonsense about purpose and mission in an IPO document to how the stock has done. He quotes along the way Spotify's mission to unlock the potential of human creativity by giving a million creative artists the opportunity to live off their art and billions of fans, the opportunity to enjoy and be inspired by these creators. And he basically said that you can correlate these things in a chart. Galloway has called it right from start to finish. In June, he said WeWork wouldn't reach their IPO. And he's not alone in sharing new revelations almost every day this week. These are really juicy, anonymous medium posts this week that the TLDR is that WeWork isn't a tech firm. They lied about their financials, their, their offices aren't full, their CEO racketeered by selling trademarks he'd bought in secret back to the firm, the management has siphoned off money and the stock has been aggressively ramped by SoftBank, the only recent investor. I've linked to all these pieces of just brilliant writing in this week's newsletter and you can get that by going to our Twitter, to my LinkedIn or by subscribing at the website eatsleepworkrepeat.com. Mark Ritson ended One Piece by saying, Sniff the air, that's a downturn you can smell. And it's coming our way. The fatuous, nonsensical garbage that has passed for good business strategy is about to get found out and rejected. WeWork is our Enron, not just because of its relative fame and sudden form, because it represents the moment when the market and everyone collectively within it realised the game was up and very much about to change. So back to today's episode. Today's episode is a brilliant discussion with Mike Isaac about the culture at Uber. I'm not supporting anything they did, but there's certain aspects of it that you can't help but admire. Travis Kalanick took people whose previous job had been running coffee store branches and he gave them whole cities of Uber to run. Giving people autonomy seemed to produce mind-blowing, incredible results. The question then has to be, could you get rid of some of the bad consequences of that completely free range, no control autonomy, and yet harness the good parts and make people more successful? It's just a fundamental question. Mike Isaac is a New York Times writer and the author of this wonderful new best selling book, Super Pumped. Here's my chat. Mike, you've written this incredible book. Uh, we're gonna start at the very end, actually. We're ah. gonna start at the end. So there's a scene at the end of this book. We're super pumped about the the Uber experience. There's a scene at the end of the book, everything's burned down. So Susan Fowler (laughs) has written her blog post. There's been the Delete Uber movement. The the team have all gone to an offsite to sort of hatch plans of how they're going to rebuild. And uh, one way or the other, they disinvite Travis, Travis Kalanick. So the CEO, and the book's really the story of the CEO, right? So um, they decide to disinvite him. And some way or the other... During the course of the day, he has second thoughts and he decides to go along. And he enters this room, and there, scrawled on the wall, is the sort of the sum total of their of their um, summation of what they believe the Uber brand has become. And they're written on the wall. It says a bunch of young bro bullies that have achieved ridiculous success. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the writing was literally on the wall in right. front of him, right? It's just this remarkable journey. So we, we know the Uber story and we know mm. the the way that this brand has done all of these things. But can you separate? That's the, the critical thing I'm interested in. Can you separate the way they behaved from the success they achieved?
2: No, it's it's amazing. I think they um, the amount of brand baggage that they had and just continue to have even now has has been really remarkable and I've never seen such like toxicity attached to a company you know like it's it's almost I, every time I talk to people I sort of ask them if they use Uber and and how they feel about it and you know most people I would say uh, often do at least like younger folks in in San Francisco um but there's like a feeling of nebulous guilt around it like i kind of feel bad i'm not exactly sure why like there's baggage around uh why uber has been sort of bad for the bad for drivers bad uh to some of its workers and i just i wonder how they extricate themselves from this negativity after being synonymous with bros who are rich and like to party for so very long.
1: Because the interesting thing for me is um, the sort of... I'm interested in... What might have been. So they've, this mm. is a company that's got the devil's playbook, right? It's got. I mean, the the things that at one point I was I was wondering, and I know there's a note on sources at the end, but I wondered if Travis had had collaborated at a great length. But, but um, I, I got the sense by the end that you you know you, you talk about your encounter with him, and yeah. and, and, um, <laughs> and no doubt you've 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 had dialogue with him here and there. But you're unflinching in saying, you know, he's a literal thief. Yep. He's uh, he's a criminal. Or he he basically systematized wrongdoing through the organization but my interesting my interest was could someone use this Pattern of behavior and just dial it back one notch. I mean, and and still be succeeding and and be doing well. I think honestly, I think in the states,
2: Lyft is like the case study in how to do what Uber did and not have a negative brand. Honestly, because if you you know, a lot of people uh, ask me, you know, is Lyft. A bad company, you know? Are they just like Uber? And they do a lot of the same things that do Uber they? did. Okay, because right? I, I mean, didn't get that impression. You no, know, and that's the thing they—they've really uh, done this very smart branding exercise where, you know, at least you know, inter- I would say internally the culture is not sort of uh, rife with misogyny and a lot of the really bad things that Uber got attached to. But if you look at uh, they were f- they were the first ones to do um, Uber X or like peer to peer ride sharing. It wasn't Uber; it was Lyft, sort of going and um, essentially breaking the law. Uh, they were the ones that they get like a lot of driver complaints, even though they are supposedly more friendly and safer. And they, I just think their brilliance was using Uber as this bad guy contrast to 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 appear more cuddly, and then having these like pink mustaches. I don't know if you remember yeah, pink course, mustaches really. on the yeah. cars. And it just it was a it was a way to contrast themselves as the good guys, though I think they probably got
1: largely a pass on that because a lot of the behavior was the same. Because, uh, you know, inevitably, this is such a wonderful page-turning book that the inevitable comparison is going to be with John Carrey you's Bad Blood. Oh, yeah. But it's it's a bit like it's not even close because this is really a serial killer at the helm. Whereas (laughs) Bad Blood, Elizabeth Holmes was sort of behind the scenes and she was all about the presentation and creating this whole illusion. Whereas Travis seems to revel in, he seems to revel in it. I don't know if that's yeah. true, no. but you know, when when Dara came in, Dara's objective seemed to be let's not be in the news for a year. Yeah and, yeah. and Travis seemed to kind of love being in the news.
2: I I think he, you know, his whole philosophy was sort of, you know, it, we're not breaking the laws because the laws are sort of stacked against us in the first place or they or or you know, like they they were designed to protect whether it was the taxi unions or uh, uh, officials who were in bed with them, like the the way they were written, were kind of just against uh, competitors even coming in. So in his mind, um, breaking or at least very much testing the boundaries of what was acceptable in 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 pushing into these markets like made total sense, right? And then. Uh, eventually, that moved into uh, things like Gray Ball, which you know we talk about in the book, is this like essentially systematized obstruction of justice and ways to like avoid lawmakers or uh, uh, sending like mass texts out to drivers to avoid you know getting pulled over and cars impounded. So they really they found ways to automate uh, <laughs> automate evasion of the law, which you know I, I don't know. I mean you could the framework that they had in mind it wasn't unethical because the system was un- unethical
1: i remember someone talking about there was a london taxi firm called i think four or five iterations ago it was called halo and at, oh, I remember at, that. at yeah. one stage they were both worth about 500 million dollars and yet uber went on this incredible trajectory <laughs> and these these bits in the book actually where a a three-month time gap passes. And then the next time you're reading, they're in India and they're in, you know, they've sort of got 30% of the market in China. And and just the growth clip was remarkable for any business.
2: It really was about the the amount of money that they raise too, and just like throwing money onto this fire to to to
1: to grow as fast as possible. I think could someone a degree more benign in their cultural ambitions have achieved that? Or did you need yeah. to? You articulate very clearly all the way throughout. Travis was win at all expense, and right. so you know t- to the previous answer that you were giving, his view was the law is not what the law says; it's the law. It's what happens. Yes,
2: that's right. And I, I think the I think you know, all of the executives I talked to in the book, all the people who have um, uh, some who eventually have to like part ways with Travis and push him out still have really conflicted feelings around him just because uh, not only was he incredibly charismatic and I think you have to be really charismatic to get some of this stuff done and to, to rally your team to support you in, in potentially breaking the law. But he um, you know, they wonder, can you build, a world-changing company without being a jerk, you know, or without like being this sort of hard charging person who has to uh, you know, essentially bully your competition, but push past regulators. And maybe in the case of, say, like facebook or or a Twitter, or you know, companies where they sort of grew organically in the software world, but, you know, Uber meets the physical world and has to fight against, like, you know, pretty tough industries and perhaps you need sharp elbows to push in there. I just, I do wonder whether a, a friendlier version of Travis would have been to be as successful and I think that still bothers people in the company today maybe they had to do it that way
1: yeah cuz it's an interesting thing I previously worked at Google and, and I think oh. it's fair to say of tech firms that they whether they intend it or not they're building a new elite they often they often go and look for for candidates in elite universities they look for the best they look for the the, the most qualified Uber very, very consciously didn't do that. Mm. There were people who were going to run cities who whose previous job was they were running a branch of Starbucks. That's I mean, right. <laughs> part of me loves that sense that, you know, your narrative isn't determined by the school you went to, but it's sure. by your degree of ambition. It's sort of, you know, I, th- I think the, the idea of meritocracy can, be, can go both ways. Thorny. <laughs> That's right. Um, but… To pluck people, I used to work in a fast food chain, like my first job, and it was always inspiring where you'd see people who had no qualifications become the manager of the store because they yep. had a degree of elevation. Oh, and God. modern work, often, you know, if you're an Amazon warehouse worker now, you don't have that degree of self-improvement. This
2: is, I would, so I, I really like that. I mean, I used to be a doorman at a bar, right? And like, I, and then started freelancing and steadily moving up, and I like the idea. And I think, you know, Travis, in a ideal world, believe that um, people would rise to the level of success that they could provide for themselves I don't I don't think that exactly works out just in the you know framework of Silicon Valley and and who succeeds and how they succeed but but I do give him credit for letting uh letting these uh, young workers prove themselves and and try to sort of uh, build up these cities and like I really do think actually you know it ended up coming back to bite them later on when they couldn't control it. But some of the brilliance of how he set up Uber uh, was just to form a bunch of little startups essentially around the world and each manager kind of becoming the owner of their own little fiefdom. And uh, it made sense because perhaps you know a guy in Miami might know how the landscape works better than someone back at San Francisco headquarters who doesn't know the best way to attack it. So it was a very decentralized system that worked
1: for a while until... It grew into a monster and didn't. <laughs> <laughs> that's the fascinating thing for me, because had there been a a deeper moral code yep. running through it, um. I would love to see the A B B test. Because the one thing that's alarming about the book is how there's a contagion of this immorality. Mm. And one example, I think I think it was in Singapore or somewhere. One colleague, one woman is out and she texts group texts her WhatsApp or whatever she does. Yeah. And she's she's worried about her welfare that evening. She's she believes she's about to get raped. Yep. And someone on the group text replies, Don't worry, we'll cover your medical expenses. Yeah. And it's just wow. Just like, what what are you thinking? Wow. <laughs> just like is is a complete absence of empathy yeah. now Running as a contagion through this organization,
2: I, you know. It's I talked to a lot of different international employees too, and I, to be fair to some of them, like there are people in Amsterdam who had a totally different experience. But there were some offices, especially in Southeast Asia, um, and uh, uh, you know, I think Paris had some problems for a time, and then like probably a lot of the the states, and in San Francisco in particular, just where the the locus of Travis and his lieutenants were, just kind of, you know, it was more about hitting your numbers and 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 any sort of bad behavior was really ignored. In Brazil, there was a manager who threw a coffee cup at someone's head because they weren't able to, like, make their, you know, trips, number of trips, like, uh, uh, proper, uh, you know, the rise to the occasion that they were supposed to. And, and And no one really got punished if they were doing well. And that's what I think... Was bred into the culture. Like as long as you get your work done, or as long as you hit your
1: targets, then you can get away with all the other bad behavior. Behavior. It's almost inevitable, isn't it, that you you can't keep all of the winner all expense stuff with, without without tolerating some of these very very bad behavior.
2: Yeah, and and and. You know, again, uh, you have to look at, and I think that's why 2017 in the book and in in the news was so important because it wasn't just Uber coming to this like what are we willing to accept moment. It was you know Susan Fowler, this employee who wrote this blog post that blew up uh, later. It was a Me Too movement that sort of just like rocked through Hollywood and then you know much further beyond. And I think I think it really talked. It set off like a discussion around what is acceptable in workplaces in general, you know? I see, even now, I look at, like, Slack rooms uh, inside of different organizations, inside of the Times, inside of, you know, some of the tech companies I cover, inside of, like, Google and Facebook, and those conversations are just very different now, right? Like, what, what women are willing to put up with, what they feel like about harassment, and I think it's, you know, I think it was growing in a lot of different places uh, around, you know, probably bubbling up between 2016 and 2017. But Uber got, Uber sort of was thrust into the spotlight and, and set on fire, almost self-immolated just for everyone to see and melt down. And then, and
1: then we started seeing that in other companies. Yeah, when you see people like Susan Fowler, who has zero power, she'd left the company, mm. she'd gone somewhere else, 26-year-old uh, engineer, or, or for me, when I see Greta Thunberg, and I, I'm mm. always sort of, as an optimist, I'm always inspired, oh, people with no power can change the world. Absolutely. And I just wonder if we, unfortunately, pay too much attention to these things and they disguise the fact that the world's just a deeply fair and and whether these are actually unfortunately mirages that are Interesting. giving the optimists amongst us hope
2: um, I, I mean like the, the so the more cynical view of my book at the end um is that everyone got rich and and travis is on to his next startup and a lot of the other um bros who got in early are multimillionaires and doing their next fund and so sometimes i wonder i mean i do i do get hope from some of the young entrepreneurs that i talk to who at like book signings are like look i don't want to build my startup like uber i want to do it a different way i want to think about culture and dna of our company very differently from the very beginning and like that is hopeful you know and and the idea that you can very intentionally think about that without sort of falling into a nightmare later on but i don't know i vacillate back and forth between optimism and and
1: we're all doomed (laughs) because so let's Briefly look at these values, that Travis. I think Travis created these values, right? I mean, I mean, they're, they're just they're just worth looking at because they're so remarkable. Oh they? yeah. And to some extent, oh I mean, as an illustration of someone's character, firstly, to someone to sit down and craft these. <laughs> if anyone's tried to do anything that, that's as thoughtful as that, this this isn't easy stuff. So these values, totally, I think is about thirteen or fifteen of them. For, uh, Fourteen. Okay. And so these things like always be hustling, toe stepping. Yep. Uh, are there any others that
2: start making magic and then? Um, uh, Super pumped, which is the title of the book, right? And and super pumped. uh, I mean, I I just I love them because it's an attempt at um, providing a vision and like sort of like forming what that culture is. But also, I think Travis just lacked the self awareness to realize. I I mean, he rolled these values out at a company retreat in 2015 in Las Vegas, uh, which cost 25 million dollars and had Beyonce as the like performing act, right? So it was sort of like we're were trying to form values in a company culture, but also it was a lot of posturing around what they thought a tech company should be. It was an emulation of Amazon, but like run through like a bro speak translation engine, like just very sort of, you know, and half the people in the audience were like, Yeah, this is this is great. And the other half were like, What is going on? Like, like what okay. is he talking about? Is this a joke? And so I I like appreciate the idea of of like you said, forming that culture. And I do think that trying to provide a framework for what you want your company to be is important but i just i don't know i think he really lacked some of the self-awareness around what that looked like and and perhaps maybe he wasn't the right person or maybe he needed better people around him to curb Curb some of that. Yeah, you
1: know? but I mean, the ver- there's one version of it. But exactly as you said previously, that this version with this these extremes of behaviour, this machismo unbound, yep. actually ended up making him a billionaire. And maybe yeah. the version where you know there was there's a degree of refinement and there was a degree of decorum, he would not have achieved anywhere near the success. It's sort of the super pumped and all aspects of that. Bring to mind Steve Ballmer's... Um, oh, man. Oh, my God, <laughs> you know, the developer like, thing. Those yeah, famous yeah. things where he used totally. to charge on stage. But then when you'd cut to the crowd, the crowd at Microsoft were men of a certain age. <laughs> that, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it was it was not a killer. They just had, like, this incredible market power. And um, That's interesting. At, at one stage during your book, you sort of, you realize that there's a dawning realization that the company doesn't have a... Um, a reputation problem. It's got a Travis problem. It's it's purely down to everything that stems from him. And so that begs for me the question, does an organization become its leader? Mm, I really, uh, you know
2: know what? Like just following companies, uh, in just in the valley so i 've been covering tech since twenty ten and got to see like the rise of Facebook and you know later stage google and I really do think they take on the character of the founder, I think like founder culture you know I sort of pillory parts of it in this book and and say maybe like a, a too much emphasis on the founder can be dangerous, especially mm. with the wrong person obviously mm. um, but you know google people tend to say Google is kind of like a uh, grad school campus, basically, like very. Um, and I actually, I'd be curious at your 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 take on it. But like in in Mountain View, at least in Mountain View, California, very sort of analytical, like uh, you know, uh, abstract and engineers' view of the world. Facebook is a little more like undergrad, maybe or like a bachelor bachelor's degree. And I think um, uh, you know, Uber Uber had this sort of uh, macho mentality. But I, I think a lot of that just stems from the tone at the top and the mm. people that are at the very top and and that's why probably the earliest people can be so important to what that company mm. looks like over the long
1: period of time. Because the interesting thing for me is I wonder if these things are true but they're a mask as in a company becomes, becomes a, a masked version of its leader because mm. you know you look at Microsoft Satya Nadella seems to have come in and made them a degree more humble and sure. made them a degree more willing to be curious but yeah you know any of us who've tried to change ourselves a commitment to our partner that we're going to be more like this and less like this we know that it's very hard <laughs> truthfully to transform yourself
2: that's so, a good no that's a good i mean i like the framework of like maybe maybe we maybe we look at companies too much through the lens of the founder yeah. sometimes you know or like and i and i take the point that they're you know, nuanced, and they're they're made up of a lot of different people, and and I think that was what was interesting about Uber to me is that like probably at its core, it was a lot of young white bros, you know, especially in San Francisco. But you know, when you become when you hit a certain size, and perhaps that's what, what caused its undoing. When you hit a, hurt a, hit a certain size, you start getting a much more diverse workforce and a bunch of different places around the world, and they start sort of saying, hey you know, maybe we're okay with this type of behavior, maybe we're not, and, and start pushing back a little more. So it's probably not uniform past a certain large
1: company size, if mm. that makes sense. There's an interesting thing, isn't there, where um, <clears throat> the you talk about this cocktail party test, or I think you talk about Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. The, the idea that if you go somewhere and you tell someone you work at this company, how does the average person react? Oh, and it has actually has a really big bearing on how you feel about the New York Times or about Uber or Facebook or Twitter. It has a really big bearing on the way you present yourself in this world. And and when they started failing the cocktail party test, it was a sign that something had to give.
2: The things that I really look for, I'm like a a tech reporter, I cover Facebook and and Twitter sometimes, and and the things that are dangerous is usually I start seeing problems in the company, A, when employees are leaking, B, when they're not proud of where they work, right? If they can go to a party and don't want to wear their Uber t-shirt, which was the case, or Mm -hmm. like wear it on the street, um... I live next to some uh, Juul employees, uh, which is and Juul is based in San Francisco too. um, The vaping, vaping yeah, the vaping thing, which is and it's funny because they branded themselves as a tech company in San Francisco. I mean, they did for a while, not so much now. But um, uh, it's rare that I see them wearing their like jackets out front, especially now since it's in the news cycle so much. But that has an effect right people i th- i think you know in america and i'm curious what it's like here but like work is so much a part of your identity and what who you are and what you do and to th- to be to feel ashamed of that or at least to have some sort of stigma around it is is a big deal and that was what happened in 2017 uber was just bleeding people because of how much bad press they were getting especially due to travis's behavior and actions
1: since um, since you've written the book and you, uh, I've heard you talk about this a little bit elsewhere, hmm. do you think some of the OG, the day one Uber, what are they? what's their noun of choice? I think OG is, is pretty accurate. Yeah, but um, <laughs> do you think some of them miss that fire? Uh, you know, back in the day, you said people used to be given a fierceness score. <laughs> if you, uh, what's it? I don't know what that's out of, but say if it's out of 10. If someone's like an OG, yeah. fierceness 10. Oh, yeah. Do they miss that fire?
2: It's very interesting now. So we're two years into the Dara Shahi yeah. administration, the new CEO. He's been this sort of like calming force, I guess, or even keel person, uh, basically on an apology tour trying to say we're a different company now. And I don't know if it's like a cycle of new people coming in or just the... Um, desire to have that founder who, you know, for all Travis's faults, and he had many, he also was able to like really rally employees and really instill that sense of purpose and vision and like say, look, we're going to take over the world of transportation. We're going to be Amazon for cars. We're going to move people and things everywhere, right? Dara's probably a little less attractive of a candidate in that sense because he's, he's more like a career finance and businessman who knows how to lead a company and and um, or who knows how to run a company, I guess is what I would say. And now there's like a meme inside and around Uber uh, employees, of current and former employees that are, that are starting to long for the Travis days. Which is funny because I wonder if they've moved past the PTSD of 2017, mm-hmm. but it's still some are missing that are missing that fire. And I don't know. I I, I still think Dara needs some. Probably some more time to to pad out what his his vision is they they keep saying they're going to be a platform for transportation, whatever that means
1: but um but it's there that longing for that passion is there it's interesting The reason why that particularly interests me as someone who's sort of fascinated in culture one of the things about culture is that you know they say that um emotional intelligence and books on emotional intelligence is one of the greatest gifts to psychopaths because if if psychopaths can read these books and learn how to mimic patterns of behaviour that's one thing but then I think well okay maybe sort of trying to learn about how to improve workplace cultures is a gift to psychopaths that they can sort of they can take (laughs) certain parts that work certain parts that don't work and fashion something that's ruthless but maybe like one degree less ruthless than, or you know you just don't do the blatantly ridiculous thing Things. And so I'm interested whether what we're learning about culture, that fire does seem to have been a differentiator Absolutely. at Uber. And can you have the fire but still be good
2: guys? I really wonder, there's an alternate version of history in which Travis was able to mature as a CEO and sort of, one one problem I think as, as uh, in startup land at least is like, you see yourself as scrappy, you sort of... Um, are trying to fight the big guys and and you don't see yourself as the big guy in the room. And at some point, I don't know when that tipping point was, but Uber became the big guy in the room, mm. right? And whether that was because they raised more than $10 billion you know, in private capital, whether that was because they operated in hundreds of cities around the world, or the cost of taxi medallions were plummeting and cabbies were literally killing themselves, right? Like they they became the big one. And I don't think they I think the problem for some is that they for some leaders they don't always see themselves that way and might still act as if they were a startup and I think that was really important to Travis and perhaps perhaps his job would have been safer if he were able to to curb that um mm. curb that uh you know impulse to go the extra bad mile or whatever but I don't know. I, I think, and that still plagues people. Was he? Ca- is he capable of that? Of that it, change?
1: As the amateur psychologist in all of us, he's is someone who's bullied. Right? He's like he's profiling. He's, totally. This is a dude who's got so much desire to prove everyone wrong. So then, when he's so, and and of course we can all empathise when his mum passes away in yep. really unfortunate circumstances, yep. and he appears to come from. A stable and happy family, and and it's in a bit of an enigma. It's like what yeah, what produced that sense of that emptiness? I really. So I talked to some
2: folks who were at least familiar with his early life, and you're exactly right. The bullying thing was was there, especially in in grade school. Okay, and uh, I mean it, it, it's like that was that happened, and so there was a point in which I don't I don't know what the breaking point was, but uh, he told someone there was a point in which he said. I'm not going to be bullied anymore. I'm going to bully them right back. (laughs) I'm going to be the bully, right? And so it's funny. Like there's a difference between standing up for yourself and just becoming the thing that you hate. And I I don't know. I guess he just decided that he was going to be the aggressor and, and took that
1: throughout the rest of his life. He's sort of the entrepreneur for our time, right? In an era where d- just, you know, you, you're in Britain now, but Britain's got this situation where the prime minister hasn't been respecting the law and in the U.S., it very much <laughs> I'm vividly... I'm familiar with that. <laughs> it very much appears yeah. that people are starting to reach the stage where if you've got enough power, not respecting the law seems to be just in your gift. It's, and, and he was the entrepreneur for our time in it's that regard. Totally, It's It's really amazing that...
2: You know, I think with, and I talk about it in the the book too. In 2016, the rise of Trump, the rise of this sort of, um, and a lot of people kind of refer to over and over. The employees I talked to gave Travis these Trumpian qualities, and sort of, if you create your own reality, which is, you know, I don't have to abide by these existing norms because I don't like where they got us in the first place. So my way is a better way. There there can be people who believe in that and follow that, and, you know, I think a lot of people, I'm a NYT reporter so I have to sort of abstain from assessing a judgment but I think a lot of folks are really scared or sort of wonder is it going to go back to how it was or do we get get back to a sense of decorum that we used to have for whatever those rules were and I I don't really see that I feel like the kind of the cat is out of the bag like and and this this sense of trumpism or not having to at least in the states trumpism not having to like abide by existing norms has only really strengthened and emboldened
1: other people to do the same mm. thing. You mm.
0: know?
1: I, I wonder, just um, briefly moving on to sort of corporate governments, governance sure. and things like that, and, and Uber is one of these organizations that follow very much in, in the, I think, Google initiate all these things yeah. the, these 10x stocks the these mm-hmm. stocks where you've got like the you know the the velvet rope where you're in the golden circle yep. and your your stocks are worth 10 times more voting rights than other people's and google's uh, google was one of the earliest firms but a lot of silicon valley has followed in its um, in its wake and i mean it, it visualizing the the world in 3 years time but would President Elizabeth Warren, look at one of those things that she looked to remove? Because they do seem slightly undemocratic.
2: No, I, I, you know, it's really funny. I think early on, you know, I talk a, a little bit about it, but Google, the founders didn't actually want to go public just because it's it's just about control, right? At the end of the day, and this is the same reason that pra- Travis kept Uber private for nearly a decade. Like once you go public you have to open up your books you have to like listen to shareholders you have to do all sorts of things that dampen your control of your company as a CEO and i think a lot of ceo or at least in in the tech industry control seems to be a pretty common thread right and so google's ipo where they gave the founders that control even despite you know going public uh cemented this idea and other founders that they could have the same thing uh Zuckerberg uh has famously done that too, and like you know the board is sort of you know just there kind of at his they serve at his pleasure i would is what I would say um which is usually the opposite case now you see so like I kind of look at it through a spectrum if you want to say. Google or Facebook are the maybe best case scenario, um, maybe pre 2016, best case scenario of founders maintaining complete control. Perhaps Uber or now if you look at WeWork. I was going to bring you (laughs) on to WeWork. WeWork is so much fun to look at right now. They're probably one of the worst case scenarios because you have these nightmare CEOs that um, you can't extricate from the company no matter what you do as a shareholder or even a board member at this point. WeWork is just a fat, it's literally
1: deja vu for me looking at this play out in real time. WeWork feels like Cinderella's gone to the ball and her dress has disintegrated <laughs> as she stepped onto the dance floor. It just feels like the most remarkable turnaround. <laughs> and I just wonder what lessons we're going to learn from that. Uh,
2: I mean, I, sometimes I hope uh, that that this like sort of... I don't know, maybe WeWork is the thing that breaks the dam because I would have thought that Uber was the case study in that, like, okay, well, founders behaving badly, maybe we don't want to give those uh, people complete control. But WeWork seems like that, but on steroids. Like, Mm. the valuation has been cut from, like, 40-something, 48 billion to, like, maybe 10 billion at this point, and totally vaporized, like, what people thought it was worth based entirely on the fever dreams of this one CEO guy who is... You know, allegedly smuggling weed across the you know the ocean on these private jets or whatever, and and uh, uh, has these crazy visions. And I think for a lot of time, that really, uh, fl- like I think VC venture capitalists kind of maybe look for that sense of you know passion or craziness or uh, vision when they're investing in someone. But perhaps it's not always uh, telling of of a
1: winner, especially in in this case, you know. <laughs> I can see why they would, because the moment where everything goes wrong for Uber, their valuation drops by about twenty billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so it suggests that while the illusion was still being presented, the company was worth significantly more. And so, if you can maintain the halo around these these leaders, then the, from the investors' point of view, this is a this isn't a lose. You know, you, you can you make the company seem more than it is. But um, absolutely, yeah, th- there's definitely big lessons from the WeWork experience? I mean,
2: I, th- I th- the, the thing I would say, to be fair to, you know, I guess WeWork or even Uber, or base- basically all founders, is, like, I think you have to have a sense of, like, unflagging optimism when you're a founder because everything is totally stacked against you, right? And, like, y- you know, unlike a journalist like me who's constantly pessimistic or cynical, like, you have to believe that in spite of the odds of, this, you know, whatever incumbents trying to make you fail, or people not wanting to use your product, that you can make a change in the world, right? And and that's really hard. And I think probably the people that do best in that case are the ones who are are the visionaries can and can incite that fire. And and Travis was one of them. Perhaps Adam Newman uh, at WeWork was one of them. I'm not quite sure, but um, but yeah, I think I think that's the the flip side of being a founder.
1: It's immensely fun. I mean, you must be thrilled with the reaction to the book. It's Thank sort you. of, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's just, I mean, I was chatting to my colleague last week saying I was chatting to you, and he said, I couldn't put it down. I couldn't put it down. It's <laughs> big. I think it's, it's it. one of those strange things where, even though we've gone through a story, it's so captivating to see what was going on in the inside. I mean, even just the the saga of how Travis was replaced, to see what was oh going God. on in the room. People were tweeting out, I'm not going for this job. <laughs> Meanwhile, they were sort of still doing interviews for it. It's It's so intriguing to see the... The way that the, the power politics of these big firms plays out, and
2: that's the the thing that yeah, it was funny. I've I've um, I'm really excited. People are into it, and I think people are uh, reading it very quickly, which is just fun to see after working on something for a while. But I think the you know the book is about Uber, but it's also just not about Uber. It's about like tech firms in general, and and like what this balance of power can look like, and and how people want to formulate their cultures in their companies. And perhaps it's a cautionary tale for those who are looking to to do companies, build their own companies in the future. And I think that's that's been the real exciting thing for me to see is like new young entrepreneurs who who do or are not disillusioned, don't want to just like stay out of tech. And and I think the other point I would make is like, look, tech is not going away we're in this like period where there's pushback against it and like perhaps people are thinking through the consequences of what building these companies can also bring with them you know like the side effects of mm. of an uber or what what they ha- like how they play out but i think the way out is the way the way through is is not to you know, do away with it all. It's more to, to start asking questions. What are we okay with uh, in a company? What kind of companies do we want to build? And what products can we more intentionally design to like to deal with some of the fallout that we weren't considering before?
1: Precisely that for me. It's, you know, these, these businesses, for good or for bad, and, you know, I work at one of these firms, but sure. for good or bad, a defining society yes. in a way that... You know, is, is slipping a, a ahead of what we probably anticipate, whether it's the 10x shares or whether it's the bad behavior has this contagion. It's just a reminder that actually we do need diligence. You know, that some of the things, yep. the corporate governance that over time now looks dusty and boring, <laughs> there's, there's a degree of truth to it there's a degree of importance to it and i think it's just a good reminder that we need those things
2: i think that's right yeah and like being more intentional i really think 2016 for you know facebook was the one to really take the brunt of of it but i think all companies now are looking at what the side effects of how you design how you build your company are and 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 trying to you know to, t- to steal from Facebook, do you know enhance the good and mitigate the bad? I think is what they keep saying, yeah. and like I think that's a more realistic view of the world than they, than people had before.
1: Brilliant book! I'm so thrilled that you've joined me for this chat today. Thank you. So super pumped by Mike Isaac. You'll see it in the bestsellers. It's uh, it's just a, a delight to read. Thank you so much.
2: Oh, thanks for having me.
1: Thank you for listening. We've done just incredible listening over the the last month. There's been about a quarter of a million streams of these podcasts and hopefully we're building a movement who are interested and inspired in improving work. Go to Apple Podcasts and rate it, forward it to friends, organise a weekly culture discussion group at work, talk about it. I've been Bruce Taisley. Thank you for listening. See you next time.